Hey guys, it's Kevin. I guess tonight we're trying something different. We're already in this quarantine lockdown due to the virus. So tonight we should not only stay inside, but also get underground and stay quiet. I haven't been able to reach them since, so I guess I'm just gonna follow their ask and talk about this week's movies. Have you tried maybe calling 911 see if somebody else keeps going? People are we're not supposed to leave. I don't really know. All I know is that I have to tell you guys about these movies that I watched this week. It's number one priority right now. What was that? I'm a motherfucking monster! <laughs> Cell phone footage taken from inside the rig itself. No word on if there are any survivors. While the nature of the disaster has yet to become clear, it is likely that the real impact is still yet to be felt. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. Human Trentipede here. I'm alone in an underground bunker at a secure and undisclosed location. We had to make some changes this week because it is out there. I can only hope that my co-hosts receive this introduction to Episode 9, Beast Mode, through the precarious channels we've set up to continue bringing you Speak All Evil. Beast Mode refers to monsters, generally big monsters, that terrorize entire populations, like the one I'm hiding from right now. Okay, everyone on the show has been mad at me for a week now because they had to watch a 1930s black and white film and I will never hear the end of it. (laughs) Crying, whining, complaining for 10 days now. Um... I personally, I loved it. Uh, I had never actually seen the original King Kong, uh, and I never, or really, I guess I'd probably never really seen any King Kong from end to end, at least that I can remember. Um, so I never knew the actual full story. Uh, I just knew the basics. He's He's got the girl uh, on the Empire State Building, and he's he's batting at fighter planes or trying to shoot him down, and that's that's all I really knew. Uh, so it was good to sort of fill in that gap. And to me, you know, if we're talking about beast mode and we want to talk about horror movies about large beasts, we got to start at the start. And, and I personally, I enjoy sort of going back, even if it's not the greatest movie by contemporary standards. I like seeing, you know, where things start. It's cool to see the origin of King Kong, but it's definitely evolved as technology has evolved over the years. I like the idea of King Kong 
but the earlier version, it's hard to take seriously because of the effects and the monster is kind of googly eyed. I do like the original story from the 1933 version. I like the obsessed filmmaker that will do anything to get the shot, often putting the whole crew in danger. And uh, of course, the starlet that will do anything to break into Hollywood. So they're all kind of taking everything to this maximum threshold um, and pushing themselves to get this movie done. The whole uh, King Kong movie dynamic with the director and everything reminds me of the tourists that get too close to the wild animals to take a selfie and then just get mauled. In the way that I like the technical effects over the years have gotten better uh, and looked more realistic. Also, I liked how uh, all the racist dialogue has diminished in each version as it gets uh, as it gets redone. It gets a little bit more woke, and I appreciate that. Cat, what did you think? Did you love it? Did I love this movie? Not particularly. Did I tolerate it? For the most part. Uh, it's almost two hours long, which is long for me for a horror movie anyway, especially if I'm not like super invested in it. Uh, but you know, there's a lot of that, you know, transatlantic accent going on, which gets old very fast. And you know, see, and then we'll do this, see, and the pictures, see, and I'm just kind of like, okay, yeah, I get it. You don't sound like that in real life, probably. It's kind of like when people do like that fake country twang and like modern country. And you know that normally they don't sound like that. They're from fucking California or some shit. Like they're not like, like all the time. Like if they just sang normally, I'm sure they'd have a good voice. Uh, but I digress. My biggest problem was, was the racism, the sexism that was very prevalent. Um, you've got a lot of, of really disturbing, disturbing uh, comments um, you know, when Kong eventually gets to New York, you hear someone uh, say, uh, I hear it's a kind of gorilla. Uh, and someone says, see, ain't we got enough of them in New York? Uh, that comment is really bad because you have to take into account that at the time, there were no gorilla exhibits uh, in zoos. So let that sink in. Um, there's also uh, the fact that uh, in her biography, Fay Ray, who plays Anne, um, mentions that Marion Cooper said that he planned to star her opposite the tallest, darkest leading man in Hollywood. She assumed that it was Clark Gable until he showed her a picture of Kong climbing the Empire State Building. I did think it was funny that immediately the white people just started killing everything that they could. <laughs> They're like, oh... An extinct dinosaur. Let me just shoot at that. That seems like a great idea. Also really interesting, too, and I'm not going to go into the biography of uh, Marion C. Cooper, um, the director and, and one of the two filmmakers involved in this, but his life, you can look it up, is really, really interesting. It seems like his biography very closely matches that of the protagonist of King Kong, which is a fictional filmmaker named uh, Carl Denham who's bent on making, you know, going to Skull Island and getting this footage. And then he, of course, brings Kong back and yada, 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 Empire State Building. So uh, Marion C. Cooper, very interesting. And I feel like a little bit uh, putting himself a little bit in the movie. If you, uh, if you check out his background, it's pretty cool. 
My favorite thing about this movie is, by far, is the stop-motion photography. Because Kong in this is a model. There's nobody, like, in a gorilla suit. So everything he does is stop-motion, which I'm a sucker for. I love stop-motion. And, you know, put me in front of a 90-year-old stop-motion King Kong model doing battle with all these various prehistoric creatures on Skull Island. I could watch that all day. Um, and I, I find that a lot more compelling um, than a lot of the modern CGI. A lot of the beast monster fights to me kind of felt like a weird WWE match, especially between the T-Rex and King Kong. They were like doing some weird body slams. <laughs> I was kind of hoping there would be some ropes that they could jump off of to attack each other, but to no avail. Like almost a DDT and a front suplex, uh, stuff like that's going on. I, I actually really liked it a lot. I will say the fights between the beasts, there's, a, there's like four different ones. Does it get old after a while? To me personally, yes. There were times where I kind of just sped through them because I'm just not super interested in watching Clay fight each other, but that's just me. I'm not judging anyone else that, you know, is super down for that. If it was 1933 and I was like 10 years old and I saw this movie for the first time, I would be super psyched, I'm sure. But in 2020... Uh, coming to you from a horror movie podcast. This is not a horror movie. It did set the precedent for monster movies to come. And in many ways, it invented this genre. So I have to give it its due respect. Um, but I'm not a huge fan. Oh, fuck. Fuck, fuck. I think he heard me. You can stream King Kong 1933 on Amazon Prime. Voodoo, iTunes, or YouTube. Okay, uh, it's uh, it's a little bit uh, I'm a little bit touch and go here right now, uh, but I got. Oh, hold on. Uh, I do have to talk about Tremors, uh, the nineteen ninety. Currently available on Netflix. Uh, this movie is basically about a small podunk town uh, in the middle of nowhere in the desert who all of a sudden find themselves prey to these giant underground uh, worms that just hunt you by sound and come up from under the ground and eat you. Directed by Ron Underwood who was known for City Slickers and Mighty Joe Young. He also has a lot of TV credits. It was a total box office bomb at the time. Had about an $11 million budget, a $16 million box office return, um, which is about a, a fifth of what the studios projected. Um, but reports have it that it tripled its box office on home video, which is a very difficult thing to find. Uh, studios don't like to release their home video uh, numbers. Um, but it's become a cult classic, and I think for a very good reason. Look, um, I've had a hard time getting my daughter to watch any type of scary movie with me. And this week, I got her to watch the first four Tremors movies with me. Because, yes, 
Tremors is not only a 1990 cult classic, it has spawned five other movies on top of the original, and a seventh is due to come out this year. Uh, this movie was written by S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock, uh, who are known for Short Circuit, Batteries Not Included, um, and Wild Wild West, which probably ended their careers. But Short Circuit and Batteries Not Included to us 80s and 90s children are beloved movies. Um, this whole thing was conceived when Wilson and Maddock were doing Navy educational videos and they climbed a large desert boulder and one of them said, what if there was something that wouldn't let us off this rock? They shared the idea with Underwood, who was working uh, for National Geographic at the time, and he used his knowledge of zoology to uh, kind of create the monsters and come up with this. I had you know, pretty low expectations going in. Uh, I think I picked Tremors off the you know, top of the bargain bin in my mind, like, uh, I've never seen this, I've heard some stuff that people uh, think it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, underrated or, um, you know, under-considered uh, horror movie, um, so I remember the first time being like, wow, this is great, I love this movie, um, it's unlike pretty much... Pretty much anything else other than that is solidly in the beast mode genre. First, first of all, if we're talking about sandworms and colossal practical effects, we got to shout out David Lynch's Dune from six years earlier. That being said, I thought that Tremors was decent, uh, lighthearted, uh, kind of a Disney vibe at, at some points, but I did like it. Uh, the bromance and machismo mixed with like the country twang guitar kind of really wasn't my thing. But around like the 15th chest bump, I was like into it again. <laughs> Probably one of my favorite of the beasts that we watched. Um, very funny. Uh, oh, I'd say lighthearted. Um, you got the uh the kevin bacon uh starring in this bad boy um he had that sweet sweet um cut off tea um i was hoping for more of a crop top situation you know i love the uh the, the male crop top uh no dice but that's okay am i a huge kevin bacon fan eh, you know he's not really my type of eye candy he can cut a rug absolutely uh, but I thought he showed his, like, horror comedy chops. I think that um, watching it now, um, I was a little bit... It's not quite as much fun now because I think because my expectations now were higher. I have I hadn't seen it. I'd only seen it once um, the first time. And then I watched it again this week. Um, so I had the higher expectations now of... You know, having really, really liked it and, and been surprised the first time. So there's not, uh, to me anyway, there's not like a whole lot to discover um, on another uh, another watch with this one. Um, it, it, it is what it is. It, it is, in my opinion, it, it is a true original and um, a certified you know, minor classic. There are some really cool effects in this movie. I think I like it so much because, you know, this, is, this came out in 1990. Not a lot of CGI, if any. Um, everything's kind of like this weird uh, Jim Henson puppet <laughs> tremor. One of my favorite effects 
right off the bat was uh, this construction worker was using a jackhammer and jackhammered into (laughs) the giant worm. And then the giant worm, you know, slides underneath the concrete and you just see this jackhammer just like moving super fast through, you know, the dirt, like towards the people. And I think that's something that this movie does really well is that they use the fact that you can't see it exactly, but you can see where it's going. And that gives it like a very like scary feel like people can see that it's coming towards them without seeing the actual monster itself. I would say that this is a a star-studded cast, if you will. You know, it's got Kevin Bacon, it's got Fred Ward, uh, Finn Carter plays the lead uh, woman, Rhonda, but it's also got our girl Reba, Reba McIntyre, and then also the little girl from Jurassic Park. She's like a teenager in Jurassic Park, but definitely that same girl so she's been dealing with monsters for a lot of her career and i i really respect that about her i love reba's character reba and her husband are like these two uh like doomsday prepper (laughs) kind of people and they have this big arsenal of weapons and like an underground bunker and they talk about how they have, you know, food for, you know, weeks and like distilled water and all this stuff. And everybody kind of like, you know, jokes about them and like kind of writes them off. But I think this just shows that everybody laughs at the doomsday people until it's time to fight a bunch of giant worms. Uh, And also Tremors connects uh, Reba McIntyre to Kevin Bacon. So just in this one movie, you're down to about you know, two degrees uh, from anyone if you're... Before the virus, in the year 2000, my musical group, The Rustic Overtones, spent three weeks at Reba McIntyre's Starstruck Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, recording what would be our major label debut. There was a helicopter pad on the roof that awaited Reba's frequent visits, and the walls were adorned with pictures of Reba and all the famous artists that had recorded there in warm embrace. Her house engineer of more than 20 years told us she had taken a photograph with every artist that had ever recorded there in hopes to preserve the moment they spent there before finding fame and fortune. Days became weeks, and we soon realized there would be no rags to riches memoir. There would be no picture. Reba wasn't coming. As scorned minstrels, we cursed her name across the land promising to exact revenge with our meteoric rise to the top. But as it turned out, I guess she wouldn't be needing that picture after all. But that's one degree to Kevin Bacon, bitches. But what do I do with this picture of you? Bro, seriously? 
I just told you she hurt my feelings. Okay, um, I'm gonna try to see if I can get a signal of any kind here on the radio uh, for it. Still nothing. Um, but I gotta talk about the host. Uh, 2006, this is uh, Lun Jun Ho. Um, 14 years prior to Parasite, um, the Academy Award sweeping film that um, he directed uh, and co-wrote, um, which I loved Parasite, and I don't know that we'll get to that here. But if you haven't seen The Host, 2006, it is a classic monster movie. Um, release because my former uh, and no longer existing local independent video store, Videoport, uh, at the time it hit DVD, they made sure that everyone was aware of this movie. Um, I think a, a staff person might have even personally recommended it to me because I was in there a lot and yeah, I was renting horror movies and foreign movies and weird stuff, but um, they still, they were they were pumping this. They had it right out in their, um, their sort of um, uh, high display section, so you couldn't really not be aware of it. So I just took a chance. I didn't know anything about it, except that everyone at the video store was chatting about it, and, you know, the word was you had to see the host. Um, and this is, again, uh, and I've talked about this before, and I will continue to... Um, you know, I would never have known about this movie. I probably wouldn't have ever known about any movie by uh, Boon Joon-ho uh, until Snowpiercer, which was 2013. I, w I probably wouldn't have known about any of these movies. Um, I might have stumbled across. Probably not without Videoport. If it wasn't for that, you know, physical, local... This movie had an $11 million budget uh, and ended up pulling in $89 million. These are U.S. dollar figures. Um, at the time of its release in South Korea, it was the highest grossing film of all time. I picked this film, and I think they picked this film because like Train to Busan, which we uh, covered in a previous episode, uh, this movie isn't just a monster film or a horror film. It is a, a real study in family dynamic with tons of uh, peripheral or, or maybe very direct uh, lines to classism, society, uh, government, um, and it just happens to have a giant fucking monster in it. So the premise is that in uh, the early 2000s, a Korean mortician working for a U.S. military uh, government facility was ordered to dump large amounts of formaldehyde down the drain, uh, or formalin as some other people know it. Um, a couple of years later, some fishermen in the Han River where this formaldehyde would have dumped into come across a small mutated fish and capture it quickly but let it go. And then in 2006, um, a gigantic fucking crazy monster jumps out of the river and starts eating people and wreaking havoc. It, it, a huge study on family, 
a huge study on parenting, um, but also a gigantic study on government. And I think this movie ended up being unintentionally very, very good for the time because there's a whole element of this film where they're talking about a virus that doesn't exist. And I'm, I'm certainly not saying that to, to downplay thing that's going on right now, but um, there's just this crazy element to this movie that I watched this with my daughter and she was like, are they talking about... The monster looked pretty scary. It was hanging from its tail like underneath a bridge. And I was like, oh, it's very alien-esque. It looks, you know, it's dark, it's ominous, it's spooky. And then once the monster actually was on land and attacking people, it just kind of looked like a big old fish with legs. Personally to me, I guess I didn't really think it was that scary. My hopes were high. But also, you know... Had it been running towards me personally, I'm sure I also would think it was scary. But I guess from an outside view, not so much. So when this movie came out, um, a lot of people criticized it because it was very quote-unquote anti-American. And Bong Joon-ho actually came out and said, no, it's really not, but these were real things that happened. But one thing that I think is kind of funny is that when it came out, North Korea loved it specifically for that fact. This film did very well in North Korea because they they hailed it as like an anti-American film, which I mean, it is, which isn't bad because America is pretty. Anyone that's come in contact with this big old fish. You know, come here, we're going to disinfect you, yada, yada, yada. This is not a test. This is your biohazard warning system. I'm personally not into virus-related things, to be honest, because of the United States government. There's a point where they're trying to to talk about the virus and how the U.S. is using, using media propaganda to to point out how South Korea is not handling it well. Given what is, you know, now happening all over the world with the... That kind of took me a little bit by surprise at how timely uh, it is now. This one gains with age, I think. Um, It's funny, you know, going back and watching some of these movies again, some of them, like this one, I I had only seen once. Watching it now, you know, there are some that don't quite hold up as well and there are some that just are better now that you appreciate more now or that i appreciate more now um this really hasn't dated much at all um you know they even have cell phones they're very old like you know flip phone style um but really you know it really could have been made last year um a lot of what was going on in the movie was over my head at the time i didn't really uh, I didn't really get much more than that it was a big monster movie, to be honest, at the time. Um, so it's extra uh, extra rewarding now 
uh, you know, watching it again, I can see a lot of the themes um, from not just Parasite, but uh, Memories of Murder, which was 2003, um, Snowpiercer again, 2013. A lot of those same themes, um, he's sort of working through all of these movies. So that was really interesting to, you know, go back and see sort of a snapshot of of Parasite, really, just in sort of a, you know, different delivery. I love this fucking movie. There's a lot of, uh, hold on. Okay. Um, there's a lot of class and political and cultural themes um, that I'm not very qualified to really get into um, too much. Um, and I think that most of, uh, of uh, Boon Jung Ho's movies, while they might be, you know, they're, to me, they're, they're very much um, about South Korea. And there's a lot going on that I think is pretty, pretty local or pretty national. But the cool thing is, to me, so much of that translates um, into a much broader, uh, more universal scope that I think anyone uh, can relate to. I mean, it's a classic big monster movie, uh, but it's a family movie um, in a very like genuine and, you know, I thought moving way. Um, and I don't mean family like the whole family, um, but that too. I think that a lot of the movie is concerned about familial bonds and familial hierarchy. And there really is an underlying theme here. You know, we see a lot in horror movies of like parents, you know, whether they be good or bad, trying to, you know, save their children or, you know, take the lead. You know, we watched Train to Busan and that was a big portion of it. You know, this dad trying to make up for being a terrible dad. You see a lot of that in the host as well. There's this, uh, there's this child who's one of the main characters and then her, you know, quote unquote deadbeat dad who works at this food stand and he, you know, you can tell that he's kind of trying to get her to like him, I guess, but the rest of it isn't really working out. One of the big things is that he has a chance to save her from the monster right when it shows up and he completely fucks that up. <laughs> I think his character arc is really fulfilled, especially at the end of the film. Um, I think everything kind of works out for him. Yeah, I didn't quite get the deadbeat dad character in the host. He had like narcolepsy and would fall asleep every time they try to develop a plan, but then would miraculously snap awake when there's imminent danger. Uh, they never really explained why he has this like spidey sense. Um, and there's so many scenes where he just goes from being totally fast asleep to sprinting to safety in a matter of seconds. There's always an element of comedy uh, in South Korean movies that I don't quite get. Um, but that almost makes it funnier. The characters are so well-developed themselves that uh, a lot of that kind of campy acting is, um, is forgivable for me. Some of the filming of this movie, and if you've seen it, you know that there are some very powerful scenes in the sewers where Han Xiao is being held captive by the monster. Uh, they actually took place in the real sewers near the Han River. Um, which is gross. 
Um, the creature modeling was done by, hey, New Zealand-based Way to Workshop. Uh, that's Peter Jackson's friends that we've talked about in previous episodes. Uh, those were his buddies that worked on things like Bad Taste and uh, Dead Alive with him. Uh, the Orphanage has FX credits on the whole thing. Uh, the Orphanage is now since disbanded. They were part of, uh, I think, Electric Light Studios or whatever that uh, is a big, big uh, FX studio. The U.S. doctor who directs Mr. Kim to dump the formaldehyde or formalin into the drain which goes into the Han River is Scott Wilson. Uh, Scott Wilson, we have talked about. We will talk about... Uh, was in Behind the Mask. He was in Monster, the Charlize Theron version. Uh, he was Herschel in The Walking Dead. Uh, he had a long career. He's a great character actor. He passed away in October of 2018. Um, so, yeah, kudos. Thank you, Scott Wilson. You're in so so many scenes that that uh, we love in the horror world. You know, for a movie about a radioactive monster. Uh, <laughs> Disregard, um, even malevolent disregard for the environment by none other than the U.S. military. <sighs> okay, uh, it's something that I think there's there's nothing you have to uh, you have to protect anyone from. You can watch this with your kids, and I think they'll get something out of it too because it is. Um, it is almost, I, I, this might sound silly, but it is almost a sort of a, a Disney adventure vibe in, in a lot of those. Okay, uh, this one right now uh, is a rental online. It's not on any of these streaming services, but it's worth a couple bucks. If you liked Parasite, even if you've never seen Parasite or Snowpiercer, um, you definitely should see the host. I think, like, I gotta go. signal I have managed to get and things just keep getting worse uh, another movie we watched this week was Troll Hunter 2010 Norwegian big monster found footage extravaganza Very simple concept. It's a bunch of students that are going to uh, allegedly try to capture an illegal bear hunter and they stumble upon the fact that he is um, a troll hunter 
And they continue on because they're college film students and trying to make a name for themselves. And they end up uh, intertwined in this insane governmental conspiracy where the government is trying to hide the fact that trolls exist in Norway. And this uh, particular quote unquote bear hunter is the actual only troll hunter out there. Um, and they end up just in deep sh- um, I think that this is not only a, a certified instant contemporary classic big monster movie, but okay, um, maybe the best found footage movie that I've ever seen. Um, found footage can go back as far as you want. Um, Cannibal Holocaust technically, I think, would be the first oldest card that anyone could pull i think that found footage certainly in the new horror or modern era um you could say that cannibal holocaust is new horror fine um but i think that the blair witch project really defines contemporary found footage and i think that troll hunter is much better than the Blair Witch Project. It's sort of the, um, it's sort of the Norwegian Blair Witch Project, and it's not really a fair comparison. And I'm not um, handing out awards here. Uh, it's much later. It's 2010, um, and uh, a lot obviously have been uh, advanced and learned in between the two. But it's very similar um, in a lot of aspects. One of the most interesting I thought was um, both movies involve uh, a group of filmmakers going out to look for something and ending up um, finding something a little bit more than they bargained for. But the difference is in the Blair Witch Project, you essentially had believers. Um, Certainly Heather, uh, Heather Donahue in that movie, I think wanted to believe and you had uh, if, if, if um, the other characters didn't necessarily believe they certainly were open and they were certainly looking for something to be real. I think inversely um, with Troll Hunter, you have a crew that is very skeptical, um, skeptical, you know, beyond, you know, they're, they're really almost trying to take this myth down of the, uh, the Netherland troll, uh, the woodland troll, the mountain troll, they're they're almost looking at it as um, as a hoax that they're you know they're going to expose this hoax. So it's 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 a real sort of flip flop of the sort of traditional um, found footage realm. I think it was a really interesting movie because there aren't a lot of movies about trolls. Like it took a very interesting subject and made this whole kind of universe around it. Um, I'm sure if you go back into troll folklore, I bet a lot of these themes within the movie stand true. So for a lot of it, you're just like, they're following him in the woods, in the dark, and then all of a sudden he just yells troll and starts running. And that's when you first see the trolls and they're huge, you know, they're like the size of trees. And I always think... Of like you know like the Disney movie like the trolls or like like from Frozen like the tiny little you know shin high you know little rock dudes but these were you know flesh eating 
I mean, they ate everything. They ate flesh, rocks. And I like that you could bait them with tires. I don't know if they, they ate the tires or they just like chewed on them or played with them or something, but my favorite part of this whole process was by far the troll stench. I love that if you got within miles of these trolls, you had to cover yourself in troll stench, which was like troll juice. And um, it's interesting because, well, you have, throughout the entirety of Troll Hunter, you sort of have this um, gradual initiation into belief by a crew of, at, at best, they are agnostics. Um, and you have this sort of gradual um, realization and, and revelation for them about something that they previously thought was fantasy, that they didn't believe in. And the ironic thing about that journey into uh, a new understanding for them is I'm not going to get too deep into the folklore and the mythology uh, of trolls in this part of the world, but one of the things that trolls can do is they smell the blood of a Christian. I don't know if that has anything to do with smelling the blood of an Englishman, but those might be related. Somebody smarter than me uh, can look into that. So it's like, on one hand, while they're becoming believers, they're also put up against previous beliefs that they might have held. And this, I think, connects pretty squarely uh, with some of the movies and the real life goings on that we talked about in Real Killer Music when we talked about um, the black metal scene in, in Norway um, in the early 90s and the church burnings and all of this sort of political or sociopolitical and cultural stuff that was going on there. Uh, kind of, I think, this movie plays definitely a little bit with that, um, where it's it's almost pitting sort of the trolls... Uh, against Christians in a way that I don't think you might um, you might get that right off the bat with this movie, but certainly for me, and I only saw this movie the, for the first time The troll hunter, you know, before he lets these kids, you know, follow him into the woods, he's like, is anyone a Christian? And everyone's like, no, absolutely not, because it's, it's not really cool to be a Christian So they can smell out you, you know, when there's a Christian afoot. And so I guess that's what you get for being one of those. You just get chomped on and eaten alive. Maybe you should be nicer to the gays, and that won't happen to you. But like any, any good foreign film, um, obviously America picks up on it and they want to remake it. So as soon as this movie was released in the film circuits, um, Christopher Columbus's company, 1492 Pictures, uh, which Chris Columbus probably famous, most famously known as doing like the early Harry Potter films, um, but he's a big director. Uh, he picked it up and he hired Neil Marshall to direct an American remake. I find that intriguing. And I know this has come up in a lot of our past episodes with potential remakes and reboots um, with directors attached. But Neil Marshall did, you know, um, The Descent, which is one of my favorite horror movies. He probably could have knocked this one out of the park, but I honestly don't know how um, necessary this was because uh, Troll Hunter, in terms of uh, an indie slash uh, found footage 
slash mockumentary um, is done about as well as you can with very unknown actors. Um, apparently, a lot of the other actors were well-known Norwegian comedians doing, you know, deadpan roles. Um, I don't think that that would have been all of that necessary. And fortunately, I think for all of us, that was canceled in 2016, which has reverted the rights back to Uverdal, the original director, um, opening the door to a potential sequel from him. I watched this movie without my uh, nerd hat on and greatly appreciated it. I think it's so well done. I think that the special effects are amazing. Um, a good blend of practical and CGI. One of the few movies that lean on CGI as much as it does that I enjoyed. Um, the effects are fantastic. I don't know how much is CGI, um, how much is other stuff. If there's anything practical in it, but it, this looks really good. The trolls are amazing. Uh, I thought it was scary. I thought it was legitimately scary. Um, and there are some really deft storytelling uh, tricks that sort of take place. Uh, and I, I especially liked at the end, um, Troll Hunter lets you know that no trolls were harmed in the making of this. <laughs> So the way that this troll hunter, you know, kills the trolls is they can't turn like sun rays or like UV rays into calcium, I think is how they uh, said it. So when they're exposed to a lot of UV light, they uh, the older ones will turn just completely to stone, but then the younger ones will just explode, which I thought was a funny way to do it because you don't, I guess, as a as a viewer, you don't know which way it's going to go in that moment. When he flicks those lights on, they're either going to become a big old statue or they're just there's going to be troll guts everywhere. So I'm a sucker for like a conspiracy theory. So one aspect of this movie that I really liked is that there's the secret troll hunting agency, the TSS, the Troll uh, Security Service. And their job is to, you know, hunt trolls, kill trolls, and then cover up said trolls. So they're out there putting, you know, dead bear carcasses <laughs> around. Uh, so uh, using like fake uh, kind of like how people, you know, will fake Bigfoot, like, footprints. They're there just doing, like, regular bear footprints. So people will think that anyone who's died has died at the hands of a bear and not this huge mythical creature. So there's obviously a big cover-up situation. The main troll hunter character doesn't want to do it anymore. You know, he goes on this tangent talking about how when he first started, he had to kill a bunch of, like, baby trolls and like mama trolls and trolls that couldn't even walk yet so that was you could tell that kind of you know weighed on him oh, hold on All right.
Laura in the news, just when you thought the news couldn't get any worse, we're here to make sure it does. Coronavirus douches. So there seems to be an outbreak right now of people that think it's funny to do really shitty and fucked up things as the COVID-19 pandemic continues. You have people like Justin Rhodes, age 31 in North Carolina, taking a video of himself in Walmart saying, fuck y'all, I've tested positive. If I got it, y'all gonna get it too. And then coughing and spitting on shit in Walmart. He was arrested, charged with things like terrorist threats. Uh, And it also came out that nobody in his county had tested positive. He has not tested positive, and he's just a fucking asshole. You also have a guy like Cody Pfister, 26, looking items in Walmart and saying, who's scared of coronavirus? Also also charged with terrorism, arrested, and super fucked up. Then you have the case of a woman in Pennsylvania who walked into a grocery store, started yelling at people that she was sick. Margaret Serco is her name. She started coughing and spitting on things in the produce area as well as portions of the bakery and the uh, deli. It caused the grocery store to throw away $35,000 of merchandise, fresh produce, bakery items, and meat. She also was caught trying to steal a 12-pack of beer out of the store. You know what, Margaret? Go fuck yourself. This is the type of shit that is going to keep us in this situation for much longer than we need to be. So please, keep your shit together and keep yourself out of horror in the news.